Welcome to the Law with DK Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 68. We are going to discuss a famous U.S. Supreme Court case from 1905, and it is called Lochner. That's L-O-C-H-N-E-R versus New York. It is a five to four decision that's no longer good law and it is routinely ridiculed in law school and we'll talk about why. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas and you can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. Follow this podcast on social media, Twitter at TheLawDKW, and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. I'd love to hear from you, and if you are so inclined, please check out the Facebook page. Like it, review it, comment, subscribe, you know the whole deal. All of that helps us reach more people, so we appreciate it. I am available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching, having a beer. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. And likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law with DK Williams via a sponsorship. And speaking of speaking, I was speaking tonight at Liberty on the Rocks. Theme was how the federal government has usurped most of its power, how the limitations of specific illegitimate things federal government can do in Article 1, Section 8 has basically been destroyed. Uh, so it was a lot of fun, and a video should be up of that uh, soon. And when it is, I'll tweet out the link to it, and you guys can check that out. So always fun to go talk, and uh, Liberty in the Rocks here in Denver is great. Always some lively interaction, and it's a lot of fun. All right, so who are we talking about? Lochner versus New York. Joseph Lochner was charged with a misdemeanor by the state of New York. And I almost always link to the official case text in Oyez.com. I always link to the text, but most of the time I do it at Oyez.com, especially if it's a U.S. Supreme Court case. And that's O-Y-E-Z.com. And this is from their page on this case. The state of New York enacted a statute known as the Bake Shop Act, which forbid bakers to work more than 60 hours a week or more than 10 hours in one day. Lochner was accused of permitting an employee to work more than 60 hours in one week. Now, I'm not sure if Lochner was the owner of the bakery or a manager of the bakery. That may have been in the case. I don't think it was. But in any event, he controlled the schedule, at least to some degree. The first charge of allowing an employee to work more than 60 hours a week in violation of the Bake Shop Act in New York State. The first charge resulted in a fine of $25. And a second one, charged a few years later, resulted in a fine of $50. While Lochner did not challenge the first conviction, he appealed the second. He lost in state court, and now we've got up to the United States Supreme Court about that. He argued that the 14th Amendment should have been interpreted to contain the freedom to contract among the rights encompassed by substantive due process. We've mentioned the concept of substantive due process in the past. I'm with Clarence Thomas. I think it's absurd on its face. Process cannot be substantive. It is a procedure where you can reach the same results, however, in other parts of the 14th Amendment. You can use the Privileges and Immunities Clause. You can use the Equal Protection Clause and get to the same place. Now, Lochner was convicted of the misdemeanor for the second time, sentenced to pay the $50 fine, and, and get this, quote, to stand committed until paid, not to exceed 50 days in the county jail. This is 1905 English, but I think that means to go to jail until he pays it, which I don't think you can do anymore. That's like debtor's prison. I mean, you can be sentenced to some time in jail, and you can be sentenced to a fine, but I don't think the amount of time in jail can be dependent upon you paying a fine. 
I'll have to double check on that, but that seems like the way it is currently. And as I like to do, get out the old inflation calculator on the internet, and $50 in 1905 is the equivalent of $1,440.27. So that gives you an idea of the amount of the fine, not insignificant. So the Supreme Court tally was 5-4 to four in favor of Lochner saying that the Bake Shop Act, under which he was convicted for allowing an employee to work more than 60 hours in a week, was unconstitutional. The majority was written by Rufus Peckham, and he was joined by the Chief Justice Melvin Fuller, David Brewer, Henry Brown, and Joseph McKenna. Those are the five in the majority writing for the court. The dissent included the original John Marshall Harlan. Now, we've talked about him because he was the lone dissent in Plessy v. Ferguson, which we covered in episode five. And we talked about his grandson, John Marshall Harlan II. He was also on the Supreme Court some years later. Now, the original Marshall Harlan, John Marshall Harlan, was known as the Great Dissenter. And this is one of the cases that got him that nickname. So he wrote a dissent. He was joined by Justice Edward White, who later became the Chief Justice, and William Day. Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote a separate dissent, which is also famous, because the dissents basically became the law during the FDR court years. Now, this case encapsulates a lot of the argument about the purpose of government, about in, in a broad sense, progressivism and government control, government regulation of interpersonal relations of a business nature. So it's progressivism versus, on the other side, other extreme would be complete laissez-faire. So the question presented in this case, does the Bake Shop Act violate the liberty protected by the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment? Back to Oyez, as they put it, the court invalidated the New York law. The majority maintained that the statute interfered with the freedom of contract and thus the 14th Amendment right to liberty afforded to employer and employee. The court further held that the New York law failed the rational basis test for determining whether government action is constitutional. The majority reasoned that the Big Shop Act had no rational basis because long working hours did not dramatically undermine the health of employees and baking is not particularly dangerous. And you know my thoughts on this, any balancing test that the Supreme Court does, they're out of place. I mean, they'll balance government interest versus, say, your right to free speech. So if the government has a compelling enough reason, they can fringe upon your First Amendment rights. That doesn't work. That doesn't work for me. If you have the right to free speech, the government's interests are not supposed to matter. It's the entire point of the Bill of Restrictions, more commonly known as the Bill of Rights, to keep the government from being able to exercise its power, to keep the government from implementing its interests because they can't violate your natural rights as protected by the Constitution. But in any event, this is another one of those cases where they do a balancing test, this rational basis. Does the legislature have a rational basis for its regulation? And the majority here said it did not, because baking is not that dangerous, in essence. But in later years, the court would say it's up to the plaintiff, in this case it would have been Lochner, to show that there was no rational basis, not that the government had to show that there was a rational basis, which makes it much more harder for the plaintiff. And this case has been essentially flipped around. As Oyes says, the Supreme Court, the majority, broadly interpreted state authority to regulate under its police powers. Justice Harlan, in his dissent, articulated reasoning that would inform later decisions in the post-Lochner era. Rather than requiring the government to prove that a law had a rational basis, he would require the party challenging the law to prove that the test was not met, which is the current rule. He broadly interpreted state authority to regulate under its police powers. 
which is it's horribly named, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. And by way of an aside, Lochner's Bakery was located in Oneida County in New York, which I believe is home to the Oneida Silverware Company. So what did Rufus Peckham, writing for the court, have to say about this? What was his rationale that is no longer accepted? He wrote, The mandate of the statute that no employee shall be required or permitted to work is a substantial equivalent of an enactment that no employee shall contract or agree to work more than 10 hours per day and, as there is no provision for special emergencies, the statute is mandatory in all cases. Pointing out what we're dealing with here, he goes on, the employee may desire to earn the extra money, which would arise from his working more than the prescribed time, the limited time. But the statute forbids the employer from permitting the employee to earn it. And notice how the statute says an employee shall not be required or permitted. What if they said that no one shall be required, but they may be permitted? That really wouldn't work as a practical matter because like the NFL used to have voluntary workouts, which you didn't have to go to. But if you didn't, that affected your status with the team. So it wasn't really voluntary after all. Um, You don't have to come in later today, but it would be nice if you did. That would affect your status at the bakery. So in practical terms, I see the reasoning behind that language that an employee shall, shall not be required or permitted to work more than 60 hours a week. Peckham goes on for the court. The statute necessarily interferes with the right of contract between the employer and employees concerning the number of hours in which the latter, the employees, may labor in the bakery of the employer. The general right to make a contract in relation to his business is part of the liberty of the individual protected by the 14th Amendment of the Federal Constitution. He goes on, the right to purchase or to sell labor is part of the liberty protected by this amendment unless there are circumstances which exclude the right. That makes one think, what are those circumstances? The legitimate exercise of the state's police powers and who decides what's legitimate or not. I mean, you're going to trust the legislature to determine what's legitimate, or are you going to trust the court to determine what's legitimate? Either way, it's government determining what's legitimate. Crazy idea. Why don't we let the individuals decide what's legitimate for them? But we're not there. Not even in this case. Peckham goes on for the court. Those powers, these police powers, broadly stated and without, at present, any attempt at a more specific limitation, relate to the safety, health, morals, and general welfare of the public. So how about this? Police powers, from my perspective, are only legitimate as they relate to preventing assault on a person or theft or fraud. That's police power. Stopping a crime is police power or making a crime illegal and catching someone and punishing them for that. That's a police power. That's police, literally police. But now police power can mean what you can do to the land you own if it's too close to a waterway or has water running through it. Call that police power. That's central planning, which may be legit. Some people think it's perfectly legit, but uh, calling it a police power is a stretch of the English language, but that's what they do. So if it's not the exercise of a power to prevent a crime, an assault of any type, of any level, or theft of any kind, including fraud, if it's not that, it's an attempt to prohibit disfavored conduct, politically disfavored behavior. It's not really a police power to say you can't work more than 10 hours a day. What it is, is punishing disfavored behavior for policy reasons. That is central planning. And as to general welfare, don't get me started. I submit there's no general welfare outside of the sum of all individuals' welfare. Let individuals decide their own welfare instead of prohibiting politically disfavored conduct in the name of everybody's welfare. Everybody's welfare isn't the same as your individual welfare. 
And that's where it comes down to a basic belief in an individual, the individual, or the state. Who's going to have the control? Lochner is trying to give that power to the individual, and the dissent, which ultimately prevails in later cases, later decades, is giving that power or allowing that power to be exercised by the state. So these prohibitions, like can't work more than 60 hours, can't, not even that, you have to be paid double time, which would be a regulation also, but you just can't do it, period. These prohibitions on the ability to work as much as one wants to are based on the assumption that individuals can't take care of themselves or make that determination. They're too weak. They're too unsophisticated, too stupid to stand up for themselves. They need the benevolent state to protect them. They can't do it themselves. That is a pretext for state power. Minkin talks about imaginary hobgoblins. State creates them. People clamor for safety and they give up their freedom to the state. But let's assume the state was needed to protect poor, ignorant immigrants, which is not my characterization, but the characterization of those who think they have to be protected by the government, the pro-state power people. So those same conditions no longer exist, even if they did then. So let's grant that they were needed at the time for the sake of argument. Conditions have changed, maybe even because of government policy, but they've changed. So shouldn't the policy change with it? What is actual progress? Progressing towards less violence, because all government statutes, all government regulations are enforced by violence. Ask Eric Garner. So is progress less state violence or holding on to the use of state violence to make people act a certain way, to threaten them if they do not? At some point, shouldn't we progress to voluntary action being the goal and not action at the point of a gun? Now, I submit some don't want actual progress. They want power. They want control of that gun. Now, Mao, Chairman Mao of China, Communist China, didn't understand the reality of economics or how that worked as a diehard Marxist communist, but he was an expert on obtaining, keeping, and wielding power, power over millions of people. And what did he say? Political power grows out of the barrel of a gun. So is more political power, more gun use progress, or is less progress? I submit less is progress, which is what we should be encouraging and it ties in with the Masterpiece Bake Shop. We should be striving for a society where a gay couple can get a cake for their wedding, which we have, actually. They have a million places they could get that. We shouldn't be holding on to a philosophy that Jack Phillips, at the threat of a gun, under the threat of government guns, has to do it. He has to do it, or he will face government violence. He'll be shut down if he doesn't do it. What's a better outcome? I'll leave that to you. The court goes on, and I think this is important. He says, it becomes of great importance to determine which shall prevail. The right of the individual, having full legal capacity to act on one's own behalf, to labor for such time as he may choose, or the right of the state to prevent the individual from laboring or from entering into any contract to labor beyond a certain time prescribed by the state. Now, let me just quibble with something. So the right of the individual, absolutely, he's discussing that correctly. But the right of the state, states don't have rights. States have power. States have authority. And I think it's important to keep those concepts separate. Peckham goes on. He discusses an 1898 Supreme Court case where an eight-hour day limit for working in a mine or in smelting was upheld by the Supreme Court. That was less than a decade prior to Lochner. He says those industries, mining and smelting, are dangerous, and they discuss why they're dangerous, and he says baking is not. So that's how he's trying to distinguish that case. The dissent cite evidence that baking is dangerous, and so we're back to that question. Who gets to decide what's dangerous? Who gets to decide what state interest is compelling and what is not? The dissent says that the state should be able to determine what's dangerous and what's not, regardless of what an individual might want to do. 
Peckham also points out that the mining statute that was discussed in the earlier case had an exception that said it, it would apply except in cases of emergency, while the Bake Shop Act had no such exception. So I think, I mean, you can see why they would have an emergency exception for mining. If the mine is going to collapse, and in order to keep it from collapsing, you've got to have people working more than eight hours a day, then there is allowance for that by the government. Thank you, government. So even Peckham here, for the majority, is saying that Mining, smelting are dangerous, so the state has legitimate power to regulate that conduct or prohibit certain conduct. And as this case demonstrates, where is that line drawn between mining and baking? And who gets to decide, again, the government, or is it purely between the individuals involved? Another case involving state regulation was upheld by the court, and Peckham discusses it. The latest case decided by this court, he's talking about the Supreme Court, involving the police power is that of Jacobson versus Massachusetts. It related to compulsory vaccination, and the law was held valid as a proper exercise of the police powers with reference to the public health. Going to leave mandatory vaccinations alone, just pointing it out for the purposes of this case. And another case he talks about was upheld as a proper exercise of the police power relating to the observance of Sunday. And blue laws basically saying businesses couldn't be open on Sunday. And the case held that the legislature, state legislature, had the right, again, states don't have rights, they have power, they have authority. State legislature had the authority to declare that, as a matter of law, keeping barbershops open on Sunday was not a work of necessity or charity. So police power to say whether or not barbershops can be open on Sunday? Again, it's a stretch. It's the enforcement of a religious practice by law by the force of the state. That's what it is. Everything else is a pretext. Sure, there are other explanations. There's pretexts. But let's not play the pretext game. Let's just be straightforward. And when it comes to balancing tests and whether or not there's a rational basis for government regulation or not, lots of pretext becomes part of the argument. Like, we're not doing this because Sunday is a religious holiday. No, we're doing it because it's not safe for people to work seven days a week or whatever. So the court goes on. It must, of course, be conceded that there is a limit to the valid exercise of the police power by the state. Well, I submit it's not conceded by everyone. Everyone would surely would not concede that point. Why should there be a limit when the government is benevolent and operates for the benefit of the people, operates for the general welfare? If it's for the general welfare... Why should there be any limits? I think the answer is obvious, but that's what people honestly believe. Peckham goes on. Without limits, the 14th Amendment would have no efficacy, and the legislatures of the states would have unbounded power, and it would be enough to say that any piece of legislation was enacted to conserve the morals, the health, or the safety of the people. Such legislation would be valid no matter how absolutely without foundation the claim might be. The claim of the police power would be a mere pretext. So the question necessarily arises, is the regulation fair and reasonable? Peckham writes, the question necessarily arises, is this a fair, reasonable, and appropriate exercise of the police power of the state, or is it an unreasonable, unnecessary, and arbitrary interference with the right of the individual to his personal liberty, or to enter into those contracts in relation to labor, which may seem to him appropriate or necessary for the support of himself and his family. Of course, the liberty of contract relating to labor includes both parties to it, the employer and the employee. The one has as much right to purchase as the other to sell labor. And this is where the progressives say, this is where they, where they come out in law school and mock this case. 
They go, the employee has no choice. He has got no power. He'll be exploited by the evil corporation if we don't have the state protect him. That's what you get in law school. And that's the honestly held belief by the school of thought. And let's assume again, for the sake of argument, that was true at the time. And people will cite Upton Sinclair's The Jungle as if it were a learned treatise. It's not. It's a fictitious novel. It's a work of fiction. Many treat it like a nonfiction treatise. But it's not. And Sinclair didn't assert otherwise. He was trying to make a point with an extreme example. But have we made progress since The Jungle was written? Isn't progress the point? Should we have the same laws that existed when The Jungle was written? Or can we recognize that things aren't the same? Beckham goes on. The question whether this act, the Big Shop Act, is valid as a labor law, pure and simple, may be dismissed in a few words. He says, there is no reasonable ground for interfering with the liberty of person or the right of free contract by determining the hours of labor in the occupation of a baker. Boom, there it is. But remember, that's no longer the law. Peckham goes on. He's making this point, I think, rather well. There's no contention that bakers as a class are not equal in intelligence and capacity to men in other trades or manual occupations, or that they are able to assert their rights and care for themselves without the protecting arm of the state, interfering with their independence of judgment and of action. And it is in this sentiment, this is me again, that men, humans, the idea that they can take care of themselves, that the progressives mock and law schools ridicule. No, Dave, it's silly. People do need the benevolent protecting arm of the state precisely because people are incapable of using their independence or judgment of action. And this is where political philosophies and legal philosophies diverge, either the belief in individuals or the belief in the state. And I'm not saying one is absolute, but which side is more appropriate, more state power or more individual autonomy? Peckham goes on talking about the bakers. They are in no sense wards of the state, viewed in the light of a purely labor law, with no reference whatever to the question of health. We think that a law like the one before us involves neither the safety, the morals, nor the welfare of the public, and that the interest of the public is not in the slightest degree affected by such an act. But you can see here even how Peckham and the majority of the court is, is invoking in this weighing contest between the individual and the state. I ask rhetorically, how is it better for the court to do this than the legislature to do it? And he basically acknowledges that. He says, it is a question of which two powers or rights shall prevail, the power of the state to legislate or the right of the individual to liberty of person and freedom of contract. If a statute be valid, he says, and if, therefore, a proper case is made out in which to deny the right of an individual as employer or employee to make contracts for the labor of himself under the protection of the provisions of the federal constitution, so if this Bake Shop Act is allowed by the Supreme Court, there would seem to be no length to which legislation of this nature might go. Peckham seems to be prescient. He also made reference to a point of, quote, the paternal wisdom of the legislature. And I always love that when the government is mocked for being paternal and benevolent. It is urged, he goes on, pursuing the same line of argument, that it is to the interest of the state that its population should be strong and robust, and therefore any legislation which may be said to tend to make people healthy must be valid as health laws enacted under the police power. Scarcely any law but might find shelter under such assumptions and conduct, properly so-called, as well as contract, would come under the restrictive sway of the legislature. Then I like this part especially. Not only the hours of employees, 
but the hours of employers could be regulated, and doctors, lawyers, scientists, all professional men, as well as athletes and artisans, could be forbidden to fatigue their brains and bodies by prolonged hours of exercise, lest the fighting strength of the state be impaired. And he acknowledges he's taking the analogy a little out, a little far out. He says, we mention these extreme cases because the contention is extreme. Today, however, it is mainstream. Peckham goes on. The act is not, and we're talking about the 60-hour limit on how much a baker can work in the state of New York. The act is not, within any fair meaning of the term, a health law, but is an illegal interference with the rights of individuals, both employers and employees, to make contracts regarding labor upon such terms as they might think best, or which they may agree. Statutes of the nature of that under review, limiting the hours in which grown and intelligent men may labor to earn their living, are mere meddlesome interferences with the rights of the individual, and they are not saved from condemnation by the claim that they are passed in the exercise of the police power and upon the subject of the health of the individual whose rights are interfered with. Unless there be some fair ground, reasonable in and of itself, to say that there is material danger to the public health or to the health of the employees if the hours of labor are not curtailed. And with that, Lochner's conviction was overturned and the New York law was held unconstitutional as a violation of the liberty to contract. Until the FDR court, of course, then everything changed. As we know, it changed. We'll talk more about that in an upcoming episode of The Law. This has been episode 68 of The Law with D.K. Williams Lochner versus New York from 1905. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at TheLawDKW and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. I'm available. Let me know if you want me to speak somewhere, want to talk to me about something, want me to teach somewhere, or if you want to get a beer. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details, well, primarily about consulting and speaking and stuff. The beer thing, you can contact me directly. Until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously.